This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Hi, it's Jen White. Before we start the show, I want to take a moment to thank you, our 1A listeners, and anyone listening who donates to public media. After all, public media means that you, the public, support it. Everything you hear from the NPR network really does depend on your contributions. And for anyone listening who isn't a supporter yet, right now is a great time to get actively involved in creating a more informed public. That's our whole mission at NPR. That's why we're here. With 1A, you're part of the conversation. Your donation helps 1A bring you not only conversations that matter, but also stories, guests, and surprises that lift you up. To help this work keep going, please make a tax-deductible donation to your favorite station or stations in the NPR network. What really matters is that you're part of the community that makes this work possible. Listener support is a powerful resource. It takes all of us doing what we can, when we can, to keep this free public service going. So please, give today at donate.npr.org slash 1A. Thanks. What do bison, beavers, wolves, and sea otters all have in common? They're keystone species. That means they have an outsized impact on their ecosystem. It took humans driving some of these animals to near extinction to realize just how important they are. We've spent decades since then reintroducing endangered species into their original habitats, sometimes using very interesting techniques. Every summer for years past, Idaho beaver have been on the move in this manner. Countless numbers have been supplied for streams and lakes to bring the beaver population back to its former position. Ear tags are attached for future information. The drop crates are loaded into the airplane. Parachutes are attached to cargo lines. Ten boxes to a load, 20 beaver ready for the flight to mountain meadows. Now into the air and down they swing, down to the ground near a stream or a lake. The box opens, and a most unusual and novel trip ends for Mr. Beaver. That's from a video shot in the 1950s by Idaho Fish and Game, detailing how they used to relocate beavers by airplane. Now animals like the North American beaver and American bison are some of the 1973 Endangered Species Act's most notable success stories. I don't think they tried to drop a bison from the air. So how do we decide how to save those species and which species to save? We're discussing the Endangered Species Act as part of our series SOS, Save Our Species. The series explores the act's impact after 50 years. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We've got a lot to get into, so stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. 
Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research. On, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Joining us from New Mexico is Christina Mormoroni. Her Blackfoot name is Is Istsagki. She's Métis and Blackfoot. She's also the co-founder and executive director of Indigenous Lead. That's an organization focused on spreading Indigenous ways of conservation. Christina, it's great to have you. Okay, greetings, Jen. It's really an honor to be here. Very excited to have this conversation. Also with us, Professor Laura D. She's an ecology professor at the University of Colorado Boulder. Laura, welcome to the program. Hi, everyone. Really excited to be here for this conversation, too. So, Christina, first, just help us understand what is a keystone species? What role do they play in the environment? It's such a great question. Um, and the w- I guess the simplest way to think about it is these are the species that engineer ecosystems and cultural systems in our worldview as well. So they're really the designers. They're the things that hold everything together. Now, Laura, how and when did scientists figure out how important these keystone species are to their ecosystems? Keystone species as a concept came about in the 1960s by an ecologist, Bob Payne. And Bob Payne worked in the rocky shores of the Pacific Northwest, where he went out and removed a sea star, the ochre sea star, uh, with a crowbar and did an experiment to see how the sea star affected the other species. And when the sea stars were removed from the system, it really transformed into a less diverse ecosystem with fewer species there than when the sea stars are there. So they're really these species that might be rare, but have this disproportionate effect on their environments through interactions like what they eat and through what they do, like engineering or modifying ecosystems. Christina, how have indigenous communities traditionally thought about these keystone species? You know, we, uh, we recently sort of changed the term in, in the sense of how we're using it and the work that we're doing around keystones, whether it's buffalo or beaver or other species. And we really have um, sort of reframed it as keystone relatives. Mm. Because Beaver and buffalo, yes, they're super important to the ecosystem, but indigenous ways teach us that they're super important to us as human beings because they're our family, they're our relatives. We're connected together. When buffalo go, we nearly went. I'm curious to know how reframing the idea of keystone species or keystone relatives, as you put it, how that reframing changes your approach to these these animals and, and your thoughts around caretaking? Yeah, again, a really good question. Um, it changes everything. <laughs> it actually turns everything up on its head. I think one of the, the challenges that Western conservation and Western science have is that they're very siloed. Um, and they look at things through a narrow lens for a variety of reasons. Um, And again, I'm not a critic of Western conservation or Western science. I use it 
every day. I've done it my whole life. But I think one of the things that the indigenous worldview does for us as humans is make us think systemically, make us think and remember and realize that everything is connected and you can't just pull one thread. If you pull just one thread, you're not working with the whole system and your ability to be effective to achieve whatever end goal, whether it's um, you know, protecting a species or putting policy in place or engaging a community, you're just not going to be effective. And so when you frame things through that biocultural lens, a biocultural keystone or a keystone relative, what you inevitably have to do is think, yes, about science, for sure, Western science, but also indigenous science. You have to think about youth and our elders and the knowledge and the engagement that we need them to have in this work. You need to think about diplomacy and governance and sacred law. You need to think about engineering and technical skills. And by the way, we did fly Buffalo um, on FedEx. The Intertribal (laughs) Buffalo Council did put Buffalo on a FedEx plane and flew them to Kodiak Island. So yes, there's some technical (laughs) skills involved as well. So, you know, to say that we talk about buffaloes being everything to us. And when you hold that space, when you think of buffalo as a relative, then conservation has to be everything. It can't just be one thing or one question or one tool in the toolbox. Now, beavers are a great example of a keystone species, and, and we've known that for a while. I'm just curious, Professor D, why are they so central to their ecosystems? Yeah, beavers are a classic example of a keystone species that modify their environments through building dams. And they're really these important ecosystem engineers that when they were lost from the ecosystem, it dramatically changed aquatic and riparian areas and reduced water, changed the water flow across the landscape. So when we have beavers and when they build these dams, they can increase wetland area, the diversity and water quality of that area, and they maintain more stable water temperatures. So now they're being seen as this potential climate mitigation solution because they can help conserve water during times of drought, and they also enhance wetland carbon storage. Well, scientists are also learning more about how beavers can make the land more resilient to the effects of climate change, particularly wildfires. How do they do that? Well, we know that wildfires interact strongly with drought. When conditions are drier, we have potentially a a prime setting for a, a massive fire. So by maintaining water on the landscape, they can help mitigate the start and spread of fire. What do we know about keystone species that have already gone extinct? Christina? You know, the extinction rates are are pretty terrifying. Um, and when you think about it through the lens of a keystone relative and the, the sort of sweep of impact that that removal has on people and landscapes and waterways and other species that are in that web, in that cosmology, um, the impacts are tremendous. Um, one thing most people don't realize is that bison are ecologically extinct. Mm-hmm. And so from the standpoint of what this continent looked like when there was 30 to 60 million buffalo grazing, roaming, wallowing, um, and 400 million beaver creating spongy wetlands that were resistant to fire and, you know, created habitat for so many species, um, you know, it makes you wonder 
where we are on this continent ecologically and culturally and how much has actually gone that we don't even realize because it happened so long ago. So, you know, extinction is obviously forever um, and the impacts are just tremendous. And oddly enough, even though there's so much data and there's so much science and we know a lot, we really know nothing. And so I think one of the other things, going back to the earlier question you had that was such a great one, you know, what does it mean to look at this work through a keystone relative's eyes, what it does is it makes us humble. We need to be so humble to realize, A, what we're doing, what we don't know, how do we do the very best we can with limited data and limited information, knowing that what we're changing is in many cases irrevocable in our lifetimes and the changes are so dramatic and are so heavy on our psyche as well as the land and these beings. We're going to head to a quick break, but coming up, the American bison is now our national mammal. But what did it take to bring it back from the brink of extinction? We talk about more iconic keystone species next. Ah, the satisfying sounds of more sales in your business. And from the sound of it, your business is growing. But you shouldn't have to pay more to scale your business. With Stamps.com, you can import orders from wherever you sell online, find the lowest rates with the fastest delivery times, and instantly deliver tracking updates to your customers and stock up on supplies. Get started at Stamps.com today with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, free postage, and a digital scale. Drake and Kendrick Lamar have been lobbing some serious accusations at each other. You've probably heard the diss tracks and wondered, what's just a low blow and what's actually criminal? I'm Brittany Luce, host of It's Been a Minute from NPR, and I'm getting into what's art and what's worthy of criminal investigation and who those accusations hurt the most on It's Been a Minute from NPR. The Embedded Podcast brings you eye-opening reporting. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Immersive journalism. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Personal stories. I was scared. Like, I can't protect you. We are NPR's home for documentary storytelling. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. Do you wish stories could unfold over three hours rather than three minutes? You tired of doom scrolling? Trying to find humanity? Or maybe a deeper understanding of why the world is the way it is? Listen to Embedded, NPR's original documentary series. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's head to Colorado and learn more about keystone species. One of our editors, Amanda Williams, lives pretty close to one keystone species in particular. Black-tailed prairie dogs are one of my favorite keystone species. They are all over Colorado, where I live. They're always on the lookout for predators. That's them alerting each other to my presence. Scientists say they might even have different calls depending on the predator, depending on whether it's a bird in the sky or coyotes or bobcat on the ground. They build extensive tunnel networks called towns, completely reshaping the prairie grassland around them. They chomp down on the vegetation to clear the area, which brings in birds because then they can find insects easier. Because prairie dogs keep the grass clipped low, it's more nutritious for bigger grazers like bison, which have evolved alongside them. Black-tailed prairie dogs aren't endangered, but according to the National Park Service, humans are the most significant threat facing them. People often want to use that same land for crops or urban development. 
While black-tailed prairie dog populations are still healthy, Utah and Mexican prairie dogs are listed as threatened or endangered. I want to hear from each of you, Christina and Laura, what you think some of the biggest threats to keystone species or relatives and ecosystems are today. Christina, I'll come to you first. You know, that's an existential question. (laughs) Um, I mean, maybe the simplest answer, and I don't mean to be flip, is humans Mm -hmm. and our insatiable appetite and insatiable curiosity and insatiable arrogance to change systems rather than live with them. We always think that we've got a technological fix. Um, People want to go to the moon. They want to go to Mars. You know, we can can fix things. And so I think the greatest um, threat really is that sort of, that greed and that self-centeredness and that arrogance. And I think related to that is the fact that we've lost our way that we have forgotten, even though we all know this, it is, um, it is native to all of us to know that we live in relationship and in connection to the natural world. And if we lose that natural world, it's pretty sure what our trajectory is going to be as well. We know that from the history of Buffalo. They were nearly extinguished from this planet. And the people that lived in relationship with them in every sense of the word almost vanished as well. But the hope is that we're still here and those buffalo are still here. And so I think if we can wake up, wake up to what we know in our hearts, in our souls, in our bodies, in our DNA, and remember that we live in relationship, that we need to live in a dynamic equilibrium where we only take what we need, and we recognize the limits to our big old monkey brains, that they do have blind spots, I think that that's the way out of the mess that we've created um, that feels pretty hopeless most days. I want to talk more about that history around the buffalo that you alluded to. But Laura, I also want to hear from you first on this, this question, what you think are the biggest threats to keystone species and ecosystems today? I would agree with Christina, humans. A lot of the keystone species like otters and beaver initially declined due to the fur trade, people hunting and trapping them for their pelts. And now in terms of recovery of keystone species, a lot of the recovery plans are facing issues due to conflicts with humans and like the reintroduction of wolves or grizzly. And now also climate change is emerging as a major threat. For instance, the sea otter, there was a petition to delist it, and after review, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service decided not to delist it as a threatened species, even though the populations are beginning to recover due to the threats associated with climate change. Now, we mentioned that prairie dogs and bison evolved side by side here in the U.S. And I just want to make sure to add that while bison and buffalo are used interchangeably in North America, the scientific name is bison, which is what we're using. But it, millions of bison roamed North America in prehistoric times. And by the late 1800s, only a few hundred were left. Christina, what pushed them to the brink of extinction? You know, really bluntly, it was a calculated genocide. It was a way of exterminating indigenous people, or trying to. And it was a calculated campaign, political campaign, to eradicate those animals so they could eradicate indigenous peoples. And, and, Lord, and the slaughter was tremendous. 
um, you know, it's hard to imagine that we went from millions and millions and millions of animals to, as you said, less than 500 in less than 100 years. There's no way that's done unless it's calculated. Laura, help us understand why bison are a keystone species. What role do they play in the ecosystem? Of course, Christina could speak to the cultural role, but I'll talk about the ecological role. Bison um, have these grazing patterns that they developed over 10,000 years where they graze and then they trample, they roll around, and they play a really important role for maintaining the grassland and diverse prairie plant species and habitats for other species. And they also play a really important role in the natural fire regime. So we now spend a lot of money trying to conserve these remnant prairies by restoring these uh, disturbance regimes by trying to graze with cattle or doing prescribed burns in order to maintain these prairie habitats that are really diverse and vibrant and support a lot of native birds and small mammals. And how has the plains ecosystem changed since the bison population diminished? It's changed dramatically, and another driving force for it changing besides the loss of bison that changed the disturbance regime is also just expansion of agriculture into these areas. The prairie systems have really, really fertile, healthy soils, and turns out that's also great for agriculture. So we've lost most of our prairie system in, in the middle of the country where we have major agriculture. And Christina, speak to the cultural significance of this animal. You know, one thing I just want to point out is the ecology and the culture are inextricably interconnected. So when I talk about the cultural implications of buffalo and the implications of buffalo disappearing and returning, it is both an ecological and a cultural return. It's both an ecological loss and a cultural loss. So for example, we did a really interesting um, assessment where we looked, we've got buffalo coming back. We just recently released um, 49 buffalo to Blackfoot territory, free roaming buffalo herd for the first time in over 100 years. And so one of the things that we've done is tried to figure out, okay, let's lay um, a baseline. Let's understand what the ecology is today and what the culture is today. And let's see what happens in a year, 10, 100 And one of the things that we were trying to figure out for a variety of reasons, which I can get into, is where are these buffalo going to go? Do they remember their migration? Is their migration and their migratory roots in their DNA? And we really wanted to figure this out in advance of the buffalo being released. And so we dug into the literature, and what we found was that, lo and behold, um, when you look at where the people went and you followed what we know from the research about the seasonal round, as we call it, so people's migration, Blackfoot people's migration, it was exactly following the green up. We were following the buffalo. So that relationship between the ecology of a system and the culture of a system is so interconnected. And the health of one is so connected to the health of the other. And some of our colleagues joke about, you know, buffalo are everything to us. And they try and bring it to the modern day. So they say, buffalo is like our Walmart. (laughs) 
you know, <laughs> we get everything there. Now, whether or not you shop at Walmart, that's a whole other question. Um, but, you know, Buffalo were food, they were clothing, they were tools, they were relatives, as I said. So they gave us the knowledge that your grandmother gives you, that your uncle gives you, that your papa gives you. They taught us things about how to be good humans, as well as where to go to follow the food. Um, they were our spirit, they were our church, um, they were our ceremony, they were culture, they were celebration. They were everything and are everything to us. And that's the other thing I want to point out. Those buffalo are still here. We've got about 20,000 plus on tribal lands. Um, they are wild buffalo. They're mostly treated as wild buffalo. Um, in some cases, tribal lands are small, and so we only have tiny, tiny herds. Um, and indigenous people are still here, and our culture is still here, and our culture is still evolving as cultures do, and those bus- buffalo are still evolving with us as people and animals do co-evolve. Christina, I want to go back to something you said around these efforts to reintroduce buffalo. You said, we think about what is it going to look like in 50 years? What is it going to look like in 100 years? Which points to the need for having a longer view than is sometimes supported by uh, capitalism or development needs. You know, it, it's about being patient and seeing what the environment around you is, is telling you. Am I hearing that correctly? That's absolutely right. Um, you know, that long view, um, we talk about seven generations, that long view is so important. And it's so important on so many levels, you know, in the material plane, right? Just in day-to-day reality, how do we make decisions that, you know, yes, are relevant and pertinent and important today, but we look up as we're making those decisions and ponder the implications, the cumulative effects of those decisions on people and place and culture and land and economy, right? I mean, I think... Capitalism makes some pretty short-sighted decisions that actually aren't even good for our economy, let alone the climate or biodiversity or people. So I definitely think that long view is so important. And patience, I got none of it. (laughs) (laughs) That I did not inherit. Um, But I'm reminded by my colleagues and elders all the time, you know, we're still here despite everything. And in part, that's wisdom and tenacity, and creativity, and connection, but it's also patience, you know? It's absolutely patience. And there's a certain amount of patience that I think also makes us slow down, take a big look, and make better decisions. You know, there's a fantastic quote. I quote it all the time. It's um, a quote out of Gravity's Rainbow, Thomas Pynchon's novel, And it goes something like, if they can get you asking the wrong questions, they don't have to worry about the answers. And I think that speaks to patience. How do we have the patience and the humility to ask the right questions so that we get the answers that we need? message. Another of you wrote, I'm worried about the bugs and plankton, the not-so-cute beings at the bottom of the food chain. All the amazing living beings on our planet depend on the bottom of the food chain, including humans. And Laura, first, how, in, are, how important are these, these smallest creatures in our ecosystem? They're hugely important. They support the entire food chain. Then um, also they there are insects like pollinators that also support humans through 
food production. So they play a huge role in the ecosystem as well as supporting human well-being and food production. And in terms of the health of insects and um, plankton, I mean, how difficult is that to track? It's incredibly difficult. So coming back to the Endangered Species Act, only 6% of the listed species are insects. But there's been a lot of press recently about the insect apocalypse or insect Armageddon with concerns like from Gail and others about the decline of insects. But in reality, we know a little bit maybe that certain species, like there was a great study that found 23% declines in aquatic insects. But there's a lot that we just don't know about. And that also creates a barrier for listing them on the Endangered Species Act because knowing is half the battle. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. In any great story, there's a moment that sparks your curiosity. It tells you there is more to uncover. How, how did this happen? How did we get here? That's where Embedded comes in. We are NPR's home for documentary journalism, immersive and intimate stories. I was stone cold speechless. Nothing will ever, 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 ever be the same here. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. You care about what's happening in the world. Let State of the World from NPR keep you informed. Each day we transport you to a different point on the globe and introduce you to the people living world events. We don't just tell you world news, we take you there. And you can make this journey while you're doing the dishes or driving your car. State of the World podcast from NPR. Vital international stories every day. Let's get back to the conversation with this message we got from one of you about salmon. Hi, I'm Tom from Alaska, and I'm concerned about the dramatic loss of salmon in Alaska streams. From one end of the state to the other, the reduction is enormous, and the impact is multiple species, so much so that the 1,287-mile Yukon River no longer has its historic runs of kings. It's losing its chumps, and now the rest of the species in that drainage are failing. Thanks for that message, Tom. Christina, how are salmon faring as a species? Well, I think uh, our caller said it all um, terribly, and they have been for years. Um, and the implications are tremendous, not only for those beings, but, you know, as animals that spend part of their life at sea and part of their life in riparian systems, the implications for both river systems and the ocean are tremendous, and they're top level. So that means, again, you know, as some of the other callers noted, the impacts trickle down through that food web and affect everything, affect the whole chain of life. So it's, it's really dramatic. And similar to bison, you know, they are a biocultural relative. They are a biocultural keystone species. So the implication for salmon nations is as profound as it is for buffalo nations. You know, Laura, sticking with the notable swimmers out there, why are sea otters a keystone species for the Pacific? Yes. So sea otters eat sea urchins and other invertebrates that when their populations are left unchecked, they overgraze kelp forests, which are like the forests of the sea, and they support a huge number of other species and fish. And when the sea otters had been overhunted and extirpated from different areas, the, the sea urchin populations remained unchecked. 
and we had overgrazing of these kelp forests. And now they're coming back and you can see that they are returning to their ecological role, but that's also causing a lot of conflict because they eat a lot of the same things that people want to eat. Christina, how do we currently prioritize which species to save? Um, We tend to prioritize charismatic megafauna with big eyeballs and furry coats. Um, And one of the reasons that I think the keystone relative approach is not only the right thing to do, um, but so strategic, is because if we are able to bring back those beaver, those buffalo, that we can probably generate more interest in, more public commitment to, and political commitment to. It's just easier. Um, They look more like us than a ladybug, as much as I love ladybugs and dragonflies and all. It is much easier, and we don't have time. But if we choose those easier species wisely, with an eye to the relative, with an eye to those keystone relatives, we will bring back vertebrates. We will bring back invertebrates. We will bring back plants. We will bring back the whole system to the extent that we can, right? I mean, we've done a lot of damage and a lot of it's irreversible. But I think that's the power of this keystone approach. Um, It really does help us think systemically and rematriate systems systemically so that all those species stand a better chance of survival, and therefore so do we. Laura, do you think there are policy adjustments that could could help us think more holistically about which species we're protecting or, or trying to save? Yeah, definitely. Well, I think the first elephant in the room is how underfunded these species recovery plans are. So, Definitely more funding would help us save more species. The other finding that researchers at Arizona State and conservation decision scientists have found is that we're also allocating money in ways where we're only dedicating most of the funds to a small proportion of the species. So most of the species, particularly plants, are really, really underfunded for what they would be projected to need in terms of recovery. So it raises some really important questions about how we're allocating these resources that are limited for endangered species. And by doing it how we're doing it and not really always having transparency in that process, we're implicitly making decisions about which species to save and which species not to save, which is more of a moral or ethical question. We got this text from one of you. We are the species responsible for driving climate change, and in the end, we will be extinct. Unfortunately, we don't know what the ultimate keystone species is. If we fail to identify and save that one, we're all gone. It is also possible that there is more than one species protecting all of us. We need to save everything we can. And Tony emailed, do we only discover which are keystone species only after seeing the impact of their loss from an ecosystem? Uh, Christina, I want to hear from both of you on this, but I'll come to you first. I mean, how can we weigh that future unknown that a species might be incredibly important to human survival against the reality that governments aren't funding conservation programs enough to save all the species. You know, again, I I know I'm sounding a little bit like a broken record, um, and maybe I just have to believe this because otherwise it feels too desperate. But I really do believe that to the extent we know 
species like beaver or buffalo or other keystones that hold such significant ecological roles in the system, we know that, and why not dive in wholeheartedly? You know, grassland ecosystems, for example, are the most endangered temperate ecosystem on the planet. And we know if we bring buffalo and beaver back to those systems, we will bring back a whole suite of species. Why wouldn't we just dive in wholeheartedly? And to the policy question, there's a lot that can be done policy and legislatively and regulatory-wise. We need to think systemically. We need to recognize in our legislative and policy and regulatory systems that we're working with a system. And this siloed approach doesn't work anymore. It never really has. And so when are we going to start changing that? You know, Laura, and and to get to Tony's email about that issue of whether we're only aware that a keystone species is keystone after seeing the impact of their loss, is is that something, is that part of the issue or or do we have enough um, knowledge and understanding of the way ecosystems work to be able to identify which species are, are keystone? Well, we've learned the most about which species are keystone after they've been lost. Even in Bob Payne's original discovery of the concept, he removed the sea star and saw what happened. And a lot of these cases with bison and beaver, sea otters, we saw the massive effects of losing them from the system. And there could be other species that might have these types of roles that we just don't know or might have these roles in the future under a changing climate where we might need species with different characteristics to be playing these roles. And I think that um, an important thing here is that the Endangered Species Act is about saving species when they're listed as threatened and endangered and not maintaining species that might be common and might be playing these roles so we don't know what some of the consequences would be if their populations crashed. I want to get to this text we got from Dave in Minneapolis who says, I don't want any animals to disappear. I don't even know which animals are on the list, but they are all critical. There's a reason why they have evolved to occupy the niche that they do. Our world's environment is like a Jenga game. Pull out too many or the wrong ones and the whole thing collapses. So humans cannot overwork themselves to protect endangered species. We also got this email from Mark who says, humans' biggest problem? We think we are the only keystone species. You know, human-caused climate change and habitat loss is wreaking havoc on ecosystems around the world. I'm curious to hear from both of you. Do you think humans are a keystone species? Laura? I've seen opinions in both directions on this, but I would say no, because the rest of nature would be pretty happy without us and has persisted and evolved without us for millennia before humans were dominating the planet. I do think we're ecosystem engineers because we change the environments we live in, but that would be my answer. Christina, what about you? It's such a great question, um, and I really appreciate Laura's comments. Um, You know, obviously we are mad engineers, wildly crazy engineers. Um, We have the brains that love these riddles, and we love to solve them with technical fixes or engineering fixes. Um, We do have outsized impact on this system. Um, Where I would differ with Laura a little bit is in saying that, you know, from where I sit, uh, buffalo need us as much as we need buffalo. 
beaver need us as much as we need beaver. And there's a co-evolution that's happened since before time, since time immemorial, where we have had um, mutually beneficial relationships that has changed systems and evolved systems and created systems. And so I kind of sit on the fence there. I think part of what I would agree with all the callers and texters and voicemailers on is we're having an outsized impact on the system. And we need to wake up to that and figure out what we're going to do differently if we still want to be a part of this system, whether we're a keystone or not. You know, Laura, I know whenever we have these conversations, people want to know, well, how how can we help? For instance, we talked about the decline of insects earlier. Is there anything everyday humans can do to help? Yes. Well, coming back to the Endangered Species Act, there's a couple of different ways that species can be listed. One is through some of the organizations, Fish and Wildlife and National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Agency that they are listed or citizens and organizations can petition, but there needs to be some kind of evidence. They need to know what, how the species are doing and where they occur. And listeners can download uh, the iNaturalist app on their phone to obtain and, and record information about insects and in their backyard and their neighborhood. So we can start painting a better picture of where species are located and how they're doing. So that information can be used and individuals can contribute to that. That was Professor Laura D. She's an ecology professor at the University of Colorado Boulder. Also with us today, Christina Mormaruni. Her Blackfoot name is Is Istsaki. She's Métis and Blackfoot. She's also co-founder and executive director of Indigenous Led. That's an organization focused on spreading Indigenous ways of conservation. Laura, Christina, thanks for speaking with us. Today's producer was Amanda Williams. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Your business faces specific challenges and unique opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, custom tailored to your short and long-term goals. Backed by the expertise, strategy, and resources of a top 10 commercial bank, a dedicated team works with you to support your success and help achieve your goals. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial. Here at Planet Money, we bring complex economic ideas down to earth. We find weird, fun, interesting stories that explain the way money shapes our lives. Inflation, recessions, the price of gas, we've got you. Listen now to the Planet Money podcast from NPR. On the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race don't start and stop with the news cycle. We know that race is always relevant, and we have new topics, new voices, and new stories for you every single week. Listen to the Code Switch podcast from NPR.